Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 10, we're going back to John. You know how long we have been? I I think this is, I don't know exactly, but it's about Sermon 60, and I'm in chapter what? 10? That's crazy. Who who does that? Yes, right. You didn't have to answer me. Somebody said you. The whole adventure is to go through the Word of God and quit skipping stuff you don't understand. And if it's going slow, it's because... I don't understand. You know, how long, how old, never mind how old I am. But I've been a Christian since I was 12. If I ever understood the Gospel of John, I don't think so. I mean, I see wonderful things I love in there, you know, like certain truths I can get. But as I go through the Gospel of John, it's like I've never seen this book before. Even today, the, the kinds of things I'm going to bring out, it's like, why didn't somebody tell me that? I could have understood And so the goal is to go through it and understand it, to really understand it. And I I confess to you, I I cram as much Bible knowledge into your brains as I think you'll tolerate. I kind of watch when people start walking out. I think that's enough. Back off a little bit. Uh, But I, I really want you to know your Bible. I want me to know my Bible because it's full of life and then God can speak to us through it. See, then it is an ongoing tool. The Holy Spirit can prompt things and bring them to mind and, and build your faith and heal you with it. So that knowing the Word is, is really important. And then we apply it to our lives. We take that eternal truth we see there and we say, how does this live out? What does it mean for us today? We're going to do that right now in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Holy Spirit, open our ears and eyes. Soften our hearts. Lord, we don't, we are not, we're not interested. We're hungry. We ask you to feed us. We ask you to teach us. We would be your disciples. We would, we would grow strong. We would live vital lives. We're grateful for every day you've given us on this planet. We're glad you put us here. We're glad you put us together. We're glad, Lord, you, you, have, you are doing a mighty work. So open our hearts to it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in John 10. I will start at verse 19 going to just uh, kind of show, bring you to where we are. John has been, John takes sections of, where, of Jesus and really teaches them very carefully. He's going, from John chapter 7 verse 1, all the way through John chapter 10 verse 21, is all one event. Basically, it's that week of tabernacles, in Jerusalem, probably October. The October before he's crucified. All of those chapters of that. By the way, when we get to chapter 13 through 17, that's all the upper room, just before he goes out and waits in the garden to be arrested. So John takes these sections, and he's apparently taken notes during them. He's been writing down as, as fast as he can what Jesus says. He, and, and he's also, with, a, with his gospel, he's bringing out things the other gospels forgot or didn't include. John was, of course, there through the entire thing. Uh, The other Gospels were written first, apparently, 
And then John is saying, now, oh, wait, 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 wait. We've, I've got to show you this. I've got to show you this. I've got to show you this. You have to have seen this. And he's bringing that out. So here we've come. We're going to look at a change, and I'll show you what it is. Verse 19. Jesus has been teaching there during the Feast of, of Tabernacles. He didn't attend the Feast of pa- Tabernacles. He didn't go through the, the, the ritual ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles. But he went and ministered to the crowds who were there in Jerusalem. A division occurred again among the Jews. He's just talked about the good shepherd. He's talked about himself being the door. And when it says the Jews, it's talking about the religious leaders, not Jewish people in general. A division occurred among the re- religious leaders because of these words. Many of them said, were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Now, one of the main points I'm making today is that Jesus can, when he speaks, he, he can point to a miracle. He can point to a fact that's unavoidable. It's solid. So here they're arguing over whether he's right or wrong, whether he's insane or, or in his right mind. And people are saying, you know, he's, he's, he, why do you listen to him? He's raving like a, like a drunk man. And then some of the others are going, oh yeah? Well, what about that? And they're pointing to who? What, who are they pointing to right now? They're pointing to a man who was born blind. Remember this? Yeah, whom everybody knows. He's a beggar who's been sitting on the steps of every devout Jew, has walked by this man, man and woman, for years, for decades. They know him. And here he is looking at him, just full of life. And it's, it, it, you, that's one of those miracles. I mean, remember how Jesus did it, by the way? He spat in the dust and made clay. And took the clay and smeared it on his eyes. Why did he do that? We, we saw that when we went by. He was saying, I'm, how, did, how did he make Adam's eyes in the garden? Out of clay. And so he says, he, he wasn't healing the man's eyes. He was creating his eyes. He said, let's see now. This is how I made Adam's eyes. I mean, it's a statement in itself. I am the Yahweh in the garden. I am the divine son. It's through me all things have been created. Doesn't John say that? All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That couldn't be clearer. So the one through whom all things have come into being took clay and went over the man's eyes and said, eyes. He didn't heal him. He gave him eyes to see. All right. That'll stir the crowd. That's one of those miracles. And, and here the man is. He went and washed, remember, in the pool of Siloam, comes back seeing, his eyes crystal clear. So they're saying, well, he's crazy. And then somebody's going, crazy? Then how do he do that? And then you're stuck with, don't know. It's a fact on the ground you can't avoid. Between verse 21 and verse 22, John will now skip forward 70 days. We're going up to December. We're going up into, into, the, into December, and, it, and he says, then began, or at that time, the Feast of Dedication. What do we call that now? Hanukkah, yes. 
So we move forward 70 days into Hanukkah. It's an eight-day festival in December. It took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. I think he, the word there for winter also means winter storms. It'd be very much like saying it was Christmas and it was winter. You'd go, yeah, it usually is winter at Christmas time. I mean, it's like you, it's not worth saying. But the word does mean storms. So he, I think he's telling us it is, we're here at the Feast of Dedication at Hanukkah in December, and it's either raining or snowing. And then he says, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, that great covered area on the south side of the temple. And the Jews, the religious leaders, then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and told I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do, I do in my Father's name. Would you say, I do in my Father's name? name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Now, there's a a lot going on, and let, let your eyes skip down to verse 37 and 38. And I actually have it written out. Let's, I'd rather you looked at that and read that with me, because you're then in the same version. Right at the top of your, your message, you see it? Let's read this out loud together. Jesus said this to them. If I do not do the works of the Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Let's do it one more time. It's really strong. If I do not do the works of the Father... Do not believe me, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. All right, let's start. Jesus did not try to win people by impressing them with the brilliance of his logic. He didn't try to argue people to faith. He simply performed a miracle that was so solid so unavoidably real that it spoke for itself. Any honest person, after examining the evidence, would have to admit that God must be the one who did it. Then Jesus would explain who he was and why he had come. There was an order to the way he approached people. First, he performed an undeniable miracle. Then he spoke the truth. Would you say that out loud? He performed an undeniable miracle Then he spoke the truth. This is important. This is the way God functions. First, he does the miracle to show you his power and his character. And then he speaks to you and invites you to follow him. So often we do the reverse. We approach it in a sense in the reverse. We try to talk to you and say, well, if you become a Christian, then God will help you. God actually helps the unbeliever and then says, now, having seen who I am, Having seen my power, will you follow me? Will you follow me? Think of Israel. This is exactly how he dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. There there they are, slaves in the the, um, nation of Egypt, and he does these plagues. And they're just amazing miracles. Then he takes the nation out of Egypt, divides the Red Sea, and they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, we go to the Red Sea when we go to Israel. 
In fact, this year, we're going to snorkel in the Red Sea. I'm serious. I didn't know you could do this, or I would have done If you've gone before, don't be angry at me. I didn't know you could do this, but you can. So you know what I'm going to be doing when I'm snorkeling. I'm going to be looking for chariot wheels. <laughs> there, there is actually, all joking aside, a whole section where there are chariot wheels. That's another subject. Yeah, there are. It's down the, about 40 miles down the coast. It's quite a body of water. I stand there and I look at this thing and I think, you divided this? You did it. There happens to be, by the way, a land bridge. Uh, 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 never mind, but it's only 60 meters deep at one spot and a mile on either side. God had made a way. This happened. So he literally divided the Red Sea. Then he, then he, then he feeds them with bread that they find every morning on the ground. Then he, then he opens a rock which gushes out a lake of water. I mean, it's just a, a, enough for a million and a half people can drink out of this thing. He does all of this, and then he leads them to Mount Sinai. And then at Mount Sinai, he says, now, you've seen who I am. You've seen my, my care for you. I've watched over you and protected you. I've covered you with my hand. Not even the sun has hurt you. The brilliance of the sun. I've given you moon to walk at night. I've watched over you. Will you follow me? In effect, will you marry me? That's what happened. It was a wedding at Mount Sinai. Will you marry me? You've seen who I am. God starts by showing his power and showing his character, showing his kindness to us, and then wooing us and saying, now you know who I am. Will you give yourself to me? That's how Jesus is functioning. And I will, I, will, I will show you in a minute, that's how the New Testament church functioned. The miracle, the hand of God, the grace of God first. Then the invitation, then the explanation. People are all going, who did that? And then you're answering the question, rather than saying, well, now, come on, somebody had to make this whole universe. They didn't argue people. They didn't. It's not wrong to do that, by the way. But it's not the way they did it. I'll just say that. When we, whenever someone questioned that truth, I have no idea where I left off. It was, okay, first he performed an undeniable miracle, then he spoke the truth. Whenever someone questioned the truth that he proclaimed, all he had to do was point to the miracle and say, there's proof that God is at work through me, so listen to what I have to say. When we read the book of Acts, we see his disciples following this same pattern. First, God would perform a miracle, then they would explain the gospel. Now, I promised myself I wouldn't write out all the examples in the book of Acts. I got as far as chapter 19 and felt guilty. So, but you see, look, all right, just start with chapter 2. What, what, what is the miracle that took place in chapter 2? Somebody say Pentecost or Holy Spirit, yes. Outpours the Holy Spirit, and you've got, you've got 120 people speaking in this language, and then you have thousands coming and hearing every one of them speaking in their language. Well, P Peter, all he has to do is step up. Everybody's going, what on earth? And he says, this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Oh, these men are not drunk as you suppose, and off he goes. He has everybody's attention. He's not winning him through logic. He's explaining what just happened. I'll just do one more. Acts 3. What happens there? Peter and John are coming to the beautiful gate, and who do they pass? A man who is lame. 
and he's walking along, and he looks at them. Peter says, look at us. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He grabs the man's hand. His ankles snap straight, is what I think this Greek says. His, his ankles strengthen. The man is walking and leaping and praising God. Then Peter says, Why, don't look at us. We didn't do this. And he said, the, the Jesus Christ, whom you guys crucified, that's who did this. I mean, do you see? Miracle and explanation. Miracle than proclamation. Starts with a fact. Starts with God acting. And then we have words. Then we begin to discuss it. But at some point during the course of church history, we stopped following this pattern. Probably because there were fewer and fewer miracles. Now, if you'd asked me a while back, I would have told you that probably happened within the first, you know, 100 years. But it actually took longer than that for the thing to die out. Uh, I find now that it was like three or four hundred years that the church, that's why it grew so much. That's why all of that took place. There was two things they said that caused the church to grow so powerfully. One was their absolute confidence in eternal life. And they're willing to die for it. And they did. And the other was their power over demons. And so, you know, you and I in the West say, demons, well, isn't that stuff you give medication to? I mean, you know, don't we medicate? Medicate now instead of believing that kind of silly stuff. We've got to watch this. We're so Western. Uh, if you go around the world, people have lived and experienced the power of demons. In fact, you'll, if you try to say, there are, oh, those things aren't, don't exist, they'll just roll their eyes at you and think, you Western, you American. You don't know what you're talking about. I've watched those things kill people. I've watched, I've watched incredible things happen. Demons have power. But there is no other name above the name of Jesus. So when the Christians come along in authority and begin to deal with that kind of stuff in people's lives and break the power and the grip of those things and people are healed and set free, that caused the church to grow for centuries. We were a people always in which the power of God worked among us. And then we would talk to people about who that wonderful God is that we serve. We replaced Jesus' pattern with logical arguments. And that approach is still with us today. And we've been doing this now for so long, without arguing without miracles to prove that God is with us, that many segments of the human population have grown tired of listening to us. In their minds, we are just one more voice among many voices. One more religion among many religions, particularly in our own Western culture, we're rapidly losing influence, which is why it's time to go back and do what Jesus did and our forefathers and our mothers did. First, God does a miracle, and then we proclaim the truth about him. Jesus' statements about the good shepherd in the door divided the religious leaders who were listening to him. Which, which statements they found most offensive isn't said, but it's likely that it was his claim that he must die in order to save God's sheep. A dying Messiah was not a popular concept. John says many of them said he has a demon and he raves, meaning yells incoherently like someone drunk or, or insane. Why do you listen to him? Others evaluated his words more honestly and acknowledged that he was teaching clear, lucid, lucid thoughts. His statements were anything but senseless raving. They replied, we are not the, those are not the utterances of one who's demonized. 
They reasoned a person might disagree with what Jesus was saying, but his words were certainly not meaningless rambling. And then they pointed to the undeniable miracle that had taken place. A man who had been born blind could now see. A miracle like that could not be ignored. It required a level of power far beyond anything a demon could produce. Such power could only come from God, even if they found Jesus' teachings troubling. They were willing to admit that it must be God's power at work through him. Again, as had so often been the case, Jesus divided that crowd. Some received him, some rejected him. Some came toward the light, some preferred darkness. Some were hungry for eternal life, some weren't. Some were thirsty for the Holy Spirit, some weren't. Some loved him, some didn't. Some honored him, some dishonored him. Some had eyes to see who he was, and some were spiritually blind. And some could hear the shepherd's voice calling them, and some couldn't. And that division still takes place today, wherever Jesus is proclaimed. You might, we got to be careful. Sometimes we think to ourselves, you know, if we could have a real miracle, I'm sure that my my brother-in-law would finally believe, you know, or my whatever family member you're, you're, you've got that's particularly stubborn. And, and you're thinking, if they just could see a real miracle. That might be true. But I will tell you what you've got going here. Jesus has just given a man who has never seen, who's born blind, eyes. And that doesn't convince everybody. Isn't that interesting? Actually, the Lord, the Lord will explain why a bunch of those religious leaders don't want him. It isn't because they don't know who he is. He actually, in a parable, explains why, why, they, why they reject him. It's because they do know who he is. And they say, if we let him go on like this, he'll take our place. He'll remove us. We're going to lose our power, our control over the people. And so we better kill him before everyone follows him. It was actually a war going on. So there are people with all kinds of motives in the heart. And, and miracles won't fix that. Some of, those, some of those issues are deeper than that. But for many, they will. At verse 22, John ends his description of Jesus' ministry during and immediately after the Feast of Booths, and he moves forward in time to another encounter with this same group of religious leaders that took place about 70 days later during during the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. That eight-day festival generally takes place in December. Here's what happened. He's... Let's pick up at verse 24 there. He, he's, as I, he's walking. It's wintertime, probably snowing or raining. He's under this shelter of this huge uh, uh, covered uh, area on the south end of the temple. And it says the leaders came and they circled him. So they stand in a circle around him. And they begin to really go at him. Tell us who you are. But listen to the way they said it. That, that just kind of makes me sick. At some point during the eight-day festival, uh, they confronted him. They stood in a circle around him, and they repeatedly pressed him to declare that he was the Messiah. In effect, they were saying to him, how soon until you lift up our soul in worship? Did you hear this? By announcing the wonderful news that you are the Messiah who has come to save us. If you are the Messiah, say it boldly. Of course, their response was insincere. They were either mocking him or trying to cause him to claim a title which the Romans would consider to be a political threat, prompting them to arrest him. Jesus generally avoided using the title Messiah in public, preferring to use the term Son of Man when referring to himself. The title Messiah raised false expectations of national liberation among the Jews and alarmed the Romans, 
that a civil uprising was being planned against them. Jesus replied that the works he'd been doing revealed his true identity. And any honest person would have to acknowledge that only God could be the source for the amazing miracles he'd been doing. Miracles such as feeding 10 to 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Or giving sight to a man born blind spoke for themselves. Who but the Messiah could do such things? But in spite of all these works, many of the religious leaders still refused to believe him. One more. Jesus referred to the miracles he did as the works I do in the name of the Father, my Father. To do something in someone else's name was to function as their representative. Someone else sent you on, a, on this mission. You operate with their authority, not your own. You speak words they instructed you to speak. You do only the deeds they command, commanded you to perform. So by using the phrase, in the name of the Father, Jesus was saying that every miracle, every symbolic act, such as clearing the sellers and money changers out of the temple, every statement he made about himself was initiated by the Father. His words and deeds were powerful, prophetic signs, which clearly identified him as the Messiah to anyone willing to believe. By the way, when you and I do something in Jesus' name, what does that mean? We're his representatives. He sent us. We operate by his authority. Uh, we speak words he gave us. Do you see this? It is you and I become his servants. We are on his mission, operating under his instructions. It's a great statement of complete submission. You don't just tack a phrase on, in Jesus' name, and suddenly like you've got, okay, there you go. No, no, it means you're his. He sent you. And that's where the authority comes from. All right, back to our... Now I want to talk about how this applies. If Jesus didn't expect people to believe him without some proof, how can we? What right do we have to demand that people believe our message unless we too can point to some sign or wonder that proves that God is really with us? Jesus literally told those people, don't believe me if I can't prove it. But then he could walk over and point to a miracle and ask, how do you explain this? That kind of situation where God breaks in and does a work changes the conversation. We start explaining instead of trying to convince. No, even miracles, so solid, no one could deny them, will not convince everyone because some people will refuse to believe even when confronted with the obvious facts. That's how many of the religious leaders reacted to Jesus. They'd hidden an agenda. They didn't want to lose control over the people. So not even a breathtaking miracle could change their mind. But I think most people aren't that stubborn. If they really know that God is there and that he will forgive them if they repent, many will gladly come to him in faith. So we need to ask, Lord, what do you want us to do so that you can work your wonders among us? Would you ask that question with me? Lord... What do you want us to do so that you can work your wonders among us? Do you believe he can do that today? He already is, isn't he, in many ways, in many places. I mean, God is at work. It's not like we're asking him to just start from nothing. All kinds of things are going on. Do you believe he wants to do more? I, I absolutely believe that. Lord, what do you want us to do? So that you can work your wonders among us. If we're going to, 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 to let the kingdom of God move forward in this time, in this place, we're going to have to have that same model Jesus used. 
doesn't just have to be physical miracles. In fact, I would say one of the more, more important miracles right now is for men and women to get free from their chains. There is so much addiction, so much depression, so much, so much oppression on people that if somebody gets free, if somebody in your family who was, who was, who was drug addicted or whatever, uh, you've got, got anger, you've got depression, they're, they're suicidal, you've got, you've got, they're cutting, who knows what's going on. I, I've dealt with all that this, just this week. If, if that's going on and suddenly Jesus comes into that person's life and, 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 they're, and they're free, they're full of joy, you begin to see the lovely person that was intended there all along. That, the whole family, everybody who knows this is all of a sudden, what's going on with that? Right? We got their attention. If somebody who was a liar and couldn't be trusted for, one, for anything was constantly blaming everybody else for everything. Now, I know you don't know anyone like that, but there are people out there who do that. And, and, and all of a sudden, they're owning their own stuff. They're apologizing. They're trustworthy. That changes everything, doesn't it? It's like, what happened to you? You don't have to have eyes see suddenly, a miracle where, where you're blind and now you see, to have, get people's attention. Then, Here's a couple of kind of fun examples. Royal Family Kids Camp this last year. Uh, they, they're taking you know, young people out who've never fished in their life. And uh, our, our fishing leader takes this one boy out and he says, he says well, why don't we pray that we catch fish? Okay, you know, can you do that? Yeah. So he prays, bang! I mean, the, the kid's just nailing fish. Big eyes, you know, like, wow, God will give you fish, huh? You know, I mean, that, 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 that's a miracle. Uh, you, you, can, you, can, you can have things that God does uh, that, that just, it's all it took to open people to realizing, wow, he's here. He's really here, isn't he? We need that. We're supposed to have that. People, this is our birthright. This is Christianity. We are not a religion. We are people who know the living God. It's, a, it's very different. This is how we're supposed to function. This is normal for us uh, as we step into that. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.